Welcome to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. My name is Fregel Byrne. Every fortnight, I speak to leading sustainability and environmental thinkers and practitioners, to scientists and economists, business leaders and investors, NGOs, as well as psychologists, writers and artists. We discuss the sustainability imperative and explore the key environmental and sustainability challenges from a wide variety of perspectives. We explore the latest thinking, what's working, and new ideas in sustainability, resilience, and regeneration. If you'd like to stay connected with others thinking in similar ways, check out the new Deep Transformation Network, an online global community for people who believe that our civilization is in existential crisis and who want to engage with others in facilitating a deep transformation towards a life-affirming future on a regenerated Earth. This network is a nurturing community for ideas, practices and approaches to transform our civilization, and it is an inspiring and nourishing place for people to spend time together online. You can find out more at deeptransformation.network. I'm very pleased today to welcome William Lawrence to the podcast. William is an organizer and social movement strategist. He was a co-founder of Sunrise Movement, where he helped shape and popularize the Green New Deal. He currently works as strategic advisor for Dream Defenders, a social change organization fighting for a world without prisons, policing, surveillance and punishment. And he's developing a new popular organization in his hometown of Lansing, Michigan. So thank you very much, William, for joining me today on the Sustainability Agenda podcast. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Yes. Good. So um, you've just written a couple of articles, which I read, which stimulated me to get in touch with you and uh, talk to you about your experience in Sunrise and some of the lessons and insights and so forth. Um, before we go into the, the details, can you just maybe tell us a little bit about your background, uh, what you've been up to and what you're doing today? Yeah, thanks again for having me. Uh, my name is William Lawrence. I'm a co-founder of Sunrise Movement and just published a couple of articles um, trying to make some sense of that experience. I'm glad that you saw them. Uh, I'm based in Lansing, Michigan. Um, I am uh, was a co-founder of Sunrise and uh, involved with the organization from 2017 until about February of last year when I left my full-time position. I'm still a supporter and fan of the movement. Uh, I'm a member of the movement, um, but my, my time as a leader of Sunrise is done. So I thought it was um, due for some reflection. Um, and meanwhile, I'm here in Lansing. I'm working on some um, local organizing work, actually a, a newly formed organization called 517 Can't Wait, which is uh, campaigning for Green New Deal style policy here in mid-Michigan. And, um, you know, just generally trying to be in conversation and working as an advisor to uh, some of the groups on the left as well. Fantastic, fantastic. So um, uh, before we go into uh, a little bit of the background and the, I suppose, trajectory of Sunrise, um, it's always helpful just to get a sense of, I suppose, the lay of the land in some sense, um, what's on your mind, what is it that worries you the most or keeps you awake about this moment? Well, the political situation is quite grim. I'm feeling quite grim about it, to be frank. Um, you know, we uh, have said in Sunrise that 2020s need to be the decade of the Green New Deal. This is our chance to remake the economy, remake society, to actually address the threat of the climate crisis and, frankly, create a future where we can survive. Um, and that's not happening right now. The IPCC report came out yesterday and the world scientists are saying yet again uh, that we need an immediate transition away from fossil fuel energy and towards renewable energy. And in the political arena, it simply isn't happening. Um, uh, We had certain hopes uh, that uh, not the whole project, but at least some elements could get done in in the first couple of years of a Biden administration. And the administration has has been sorely disappointing and, uh, you know, our political forces on the left and in the climate movement have failed to muster the kind of force um, that could have gotten some stuff over the line in the last year. So uh, it's grim. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Are there any uh, 
optimistic uh, seeds there are that generally when you look around at the horizon what things make you feel what things inspire you make you feel optimistic well this week the victory at amazon warehouse on staten island tremendously inspiring tremendously exciting the starbucks organizing i think if you're just looking at uh organized activity you have to look at the 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 workplace organizing that's happening as a, a major point of inspiration. Uh, that said, the state of the union movement is such that I, I don't know if we have a force that can actually uh, take advantage of the just how pissed off workers are and organize at the scale that is possible right now. I don't know if we have the organizers and the organizations that are uh, prepared to really take this where it needs to go. So it, it's a point of optimism, but again, also tempered with a point of realism about the, the capacities of our of our labor movement institutions, their readiness to really get into this fight in the fullest way. Yes, yes. On a personal note, uh, how how you got involved, how you became uh, interested and, and concerned and uh, about, about the environment and, and maybe a little bit what led up to the uh, origins of Sunrise and, and, and what your expectations maybe were at that stage. Clearly, uh, a magnificent impact over many years and, and a huge impact on the, on the politics of the Democratic Party, but also uh, more generally in the, the Green New Deal. Yeah, so I, you know, I was um, an environmentalist at heart, I guess, from about the age of you know twelve or thirteen. I read about climate change, seemed like a big problem, uh, got interested in it, and uh, got pretty mad pretty fast to learn that the powers that be were not actually uh, uh, doing anything about it. I tell you what, it shook my faith in the adults of the of the world to uh, learn about climate change, even at the age of 12 or 13. Kids today, of course, have grown up with it yes. um, since, since, since they could walk. Um, but uh, really, when I was in college, I was introduced to what I call the, the movement tradition, the, the social movement tradition that uh, says that you can actually organize and band together with other people and everything that's good in this world has been fought for by uh, ordinary people banding together and insisting on it. And that was the thing that really um, got me hooked on being a uh, climate organizer. Um, and so I was involved in college in um, a, a campaign to divest my college's endowment from fossil fuel companies. That was, uh, then we helped, forge that into a national network of students working for divestment from fossil fuels. That was called the Divestment Student Network. And that was active in, or, you know, from around 2013 through 2016, 2017. And it was out of that experience of being part of that student movement that then the seeds of Sunrise were born, where we could uh, feel that we were, you know, building power, learning to make changes at a lot of these institutions, but ultimately knew that the real fight was in the political arena, uh, the big showdown with the fossil fuel industry to actually, you know, determine the course of climate policy in this country. And so uh, that was what gave birth to Sunrise was leaders out of that divestment movement and sort of interrelated elements of the U.S. youth climate movement um, coming together to, to form Sunrise, which then got started in 2017. Fascinating. Fascinating. And what was your vision then of what Sunrise might be able to achieve? Yeah, so our, our, our mission, uh, our, our grand mission was to stop climate change and create millions of good jobs in the process. And then that vision sort of became what is now known as the Green New Deal. Um, but when we got started in 2017, we would often say as shorthand, our goal is to make climate change matter in American politics. Because at that point, it really didn't. <laughs> and so that was sort of the first hurdle was uh, in our minds was if we can uh, put the issue on the center stage, then we'll have a chance of winning some real policy change. And so in that sense, it has felt like we 
succeeded tremendously in raising the salience of climate in American political discourse, making it a leading priority for uh, the Democratic Party, and then not only that, but popularizing a vision of what it actually could look like to tackle the climate crisis through a jobs, justice, and investment program such as the Green New Deal. That was like stuff that we were, I mean, dreaming of, <laughs> dreaming of with starry eyes, you know, in, in 2016 and 2017. Um, of course, there's a lot more that we uh, wanted to accomplish uh, that is yet undone. Yes, you decided to, to write this reflective piece, which is, you know, in, in some senses, you know, questioning decisions that were made and thinking out loud and analyzing, you know, uh, the trajectory, what you were thinking at the time, how things worked out, and, and, and to some extent, how things might perhaps have been a little bit different, I suppose. Um, before we go into that, what would you say have been um, the biggest successes of Sunrise? Yes, well, I would say that we um, aligned, we established the, the Green New Deal as a, a, a North Star of progressive climate justice policy in the United States. Uh, the climate policy conversation um, in the early and mid part of the decade, the last decade, was very focused around um, sort of silver bullet solutions, such as, you know, a cap and trade program, which would have been a huge mess and a boondoggle or a, uh, a, a cap and dividend or all variations on some sort of carbon fee, which may not inherently be bad in themselves, but doesn't amount to the sort of all of society uh, project that is actually required to tackle the climate crisis once you realize the true scope of the crisis and how fast we have to move. Yes, can and, I just ask very quickly uh, there, sorry, this, this uh, society-wide perspective that uh, you, you, you talk about there, was that there from the beginning? Because we do still see again and again, very specialized focused solutions. But what you're talking about is a much deeper, holistic, integrated, you know, economy-wide perspective. Where, where did that come from, Will? You know, we were influenced in big ways by the environmental justice movement who had been arguing for many years that uh, you know, class inequality and racism and then the footprint of polluting industrial facilities were all interconnected. And if you had a chance of taking on the power of the fossil fuel industry, you were also going to have to tackle racism and uh, and just go after the root of other injustices in our society. Um, we were also deeply, deeply influenced by uh, Naomi Klein's book, This Changes Everything, which essentially articulated how neoliberal economics and the vision of a limited state that couldn't do economic planning and only had to try to get out of the way and create conditions for the private sector was actually incompatible uh, with the kind of industrial policy that would be required to execute a transition to a sustainable economy. And um, so those two influences, the environmental justice movement, um, Naomi Klein, and you know, just a, a handful of others um, were, were quite significant. And yeah, I would say that that all of society perspective uh, was there from the beginning. We didn't call it a, a Green New Deal from the very beginning, that name sort of, um, became attached to you know our aspirations at the end of 2018. Yes, I, I just interviewed Anne Pettifor, um, who was uh, quite, uh, I think, influential in developing some of the ideas uh, behind the Green New Deal. Um, what's interesting, I think, uh, reading uh, the first of the pieces, your articles in Convergence, is um, the attention you give to the thinking, uh, the theory behind what you were doing, uh, who the thinkers were, and uh, clearly it's a lot about strategy as well. And I'm just wondering if you talk a little bit about that because, you know, you have a group of people at the beginning, um, you know, uh, some shared uh, perspectives, some uh, important uh, insights into, you know, the kind of change that's necessary. Um, can you talk a little bit about some of the, the other theoretical, uh, uh, I guess, underpinnings and why, why you think that's important? Yeah, that's a good question. Well, I spoke earlier about the, the movement tradition. You know, I believe that um, social movements 
and popular organizations are the product of an iterative and experimental process over time. Some people call this praxis, right? Where you <laughs> try something and then you see how it went and then you create theory about it. And then based on your theory, you try something else. So in a sense, it's like the scientific method. But in order for it to work, we have to be willing to openly evaluate what works and what doesn't work. And a lot of the time, that's the part of the process that we miss as activists, because everyone is trying to be polite or is, uh, doesn't want to talk bad about their friends, doesn't want to talk bad about themselves. And so the only criticism that we often have in public is criticism in bad faith, where <laughs> you're criticizing someone because you don't like them. Um, but we need a, a, a we need a lot more good faith criticism, uh, and that starts with self criticism, so that we can actually learn how to do this better because the stakes are so high and the forces against us are so powerful. Yeah, yeah, but very interesting. Can you situate Sunrise in terms of the other uh, movements that that uh, inspired you or that were on the horizon that were active around uh, at, at the time? You've got various powerful movements uh, that are taking yeah. place. You've got environmental movements. You've got other social movements. So we're situated here in like approximately 2014 to 2016, 2017, yeah. when we're putting the pieces together to become Sunrise. Right. And so, so what you have going on is you have Occupy Wall Street is in 2011. Yeah. A lot of us were quite involved with that. Black Lives Matter is in 2014, um, really first kicks off um, with the uprising in Ferguson. And so you have this resurgence of sort of street protest activism. Standing Rock, uh, a movement happens in 2016 and uh, carried a lot of that kind of spirit as well. Um, and so that's all in the air. And then um, in 20, late 2015, of course, uh, the presidential primary really gets started and Bernie Sanders starts to have this yes. incredible uh, in upsurge. And uh, that really broke down the walls for me personally. And I think a lot of people um, around me uh, that were perceived barriers between electoral politics and sort of social movement organizing. Whereas I grew up in a, in a, in a social movement tradition uh, before Bernie that thought that um, all electoral politics was inherently compromised from the jump and you could never get anything done there. And Bernie essentially demonstrated the possibility that you could tell the truth in politics and people would actually respond to it. And so that was very um, mobilizing for us, inspiring. And we realized that Bernie was actually reaching uh, more people with an anti-fossil fuel, pro-climate justice kind of message. He was reaching tens of millions of people. He was actually reaching more people by orders of magnitude than we were reaching with our own activism with the same message. And so that uh, really was an inspiration as well. And we started to think about how could we take the kind of social movement energy, the mass protest energy that we're seeing in uh, you know, Occupy Black Lives Matter, and then uh, merge that in some sense with this insurgent electoral energy that Bernie is harnessing. Yeah, that's a really interesting uh, decision and really interesting uh, approach. The, you know, moving into, I guess, the electoral uh, arena. Uh, was that obvious at the time? Were there questions uh, about were there other ways you could have approached this? Because this turns out to be a pretty important aspect of, of what happened. Yeah. You know, it was something we talked about, but it didn't feel like a hard decision. Yeah. It yeah. seemed. obvious that the Bernie movement was bigger and more significant on a historical scale than most everything else, with the exception of like an Occupy Wall Street movement or a Black Lives Matter movement. Uh, the Bernie movement was, was, was on par with those, but surpassing anything else that we had seen on the left and uh, marshalling more forces, inspiring more people, more popularizing our ideas, not to mention coming closer to the actual seat of power, the place where you might actually be able to get some stuff done. And so, um, you, you know, we, we that. Do you still think that, William? I think, uh, yeah, I think that choice was 
I think that choice was vindicated. I think that Bernie uh, had Bernie won in 2020, um, we'd be having a very different conversation. I think that bet was worth making um, because I think that Bernie could have won in 2020. He was not fated to lose that primary election to Joe Biden. And if he had won, um, we'd be having a completely different conversation. That was sort of the one shortcut available to the left was that Bernie could win. Um, but it, given that he lost, uh, you know, our overwhelming deficits in other areas uh, are now catching up to us in a big way. And that's part of what the, the articles describe. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's a, you know, broader uh, question about alignment between mass movements or and, and political organization, political uh, focus, um, which is an interesting question and something that Mike Davis talked about recently on the interview which uh you mentioned you, you had a chance to listen to that but that seemed to him the most i want to say despairing but you know hugely disappointing outcome of the last few years politically that uh, uh you know this question of whether or not political power would would empower the base and uh increase awareness and activity in various kinds of progressive union struggles and so forth he certainly felt that that the result of that was not a good one. I would agree that in 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 reality, we have arrived at the end of a of a sort of decade long cycle that was the 2010s that started with these protest movements in the streets and then continued uh, and took on an electoral expression in the Bernie campaign. Similar pattern, actually, to what we saw in Europe with the Corbyn, uh, Corbyn movement and um, certain other insurgent parties in, in other parts of Europe to have arrived at the end of that decade in the United States, and it would seem in the UK as well, uh, with uh, really hard to say if we have more infrastructure, uh, more left infrastructure that we need to be able to carry on the struggle and uh, wield independent political power, it's, it's arguable. <laughs> uh, uh, whether how much farther along we actually are than a decade ago. And I think to have arrived at the end of that decade and have that be the outcome is certainly uh, 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 something that's very worthy of reflection. And I think that that's where I would would agree with um, what Mike had to say. Yes, yes, that's interesting. And, and I just come back to Frances Fox Bivitt. And, you know, I asked her uh, to what extent she thought the Occupy movement had failed. And um, she didn't believe it had failed at all. And in a sense, the metric isn't, you know, the outcome per se, but it's the way in which these ideas have, you know, spread and infused the, you know, political scene and, and other dimensions and not a simple one of whether they got a particular outcome or not, uh, which I thought was quite interesting. Um, well, sure. But and I, and I, and I am, am a student of, of Piven and I'm, you know, sympathetic to that perspective. But uh, and that may be true for Occupy. Yes. But at some point, uh, it has to be translated into actual governing power or some kind of material reform, uh, and uh, that's the part that we've lacked. Yes. Yes. And, and this question of power is something as well that's quite interesting. And again, I to go back to Mike Davis, he talks about you know Robert Michael's analysis of what the law of oligarchy and what happens in power um, in complex organizations and political organizations. And somewhere, uh, I think Francis is quite wary of that kind of focus on, on political uh, power. Um, and, you know, that, that was that was uh, very influential because, you know, the energy, um, the focus on the on the Green New Deal. And maybe you can just talk a little bit about that, because there were some fantastic you know moments <laughs> in terms of at least in terms of communications about the importance of the Green New Deal and 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 Diane Feinstein and, and Pelosi. And they 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 were very impactful. Yeah, it was. Uh, I. I think I'll just say that I'll, I'll always be incredibly proud of what uh, Sunrise did together uh, in those last months of 2018 and into early 2019. 
And there was a lot behind the scenes that people didn't see. But we basically showed up, you know, in Nancy Pelosi's office on November 13th of 2018 uh, with 200 people. And AOC joined us. And that same day, she introduced the outline of what would become the Green New Deal. And we promoted it alongside her. And then within the next three weeks, a week after that, well, let me see. We were back at the Capitol two days later, visiting some people who had been uh, basically hating on us, who were (laughs) Democratic Congress people. Then a week after that, we had 150 in-person uh, office visits uh, that uh, people organized who are brand new volunteers all over the country who had seen the Pelosi sit-in and were inspired by it. And so they all went and visited their Congress people at over 100 offices around the country. And then two weeks, three weeks after that, we were back in DC with a thousand people. And we visited uh, 40 offices and then ha- had like 200 people arrested sitting in at three different offices. And that was all within the space of like five weeks or something in November and December. And so um, it was an electric period. And I think it just really speaks to um, how hungry people were at that time for uh, kind of more and better answers on the climate policy questions, as well as a real political strategy uh, that was demanding what we really needed. Um, But through that whole process, and then uh, continuing into early January and and, and February, uh, the Green New Deal went from something that AOC had introduced on her website, but nobody had ever heard of and nobody supported, to then having a handful of supporters, starting with the squad, to then having 40, and then ultimately uh, now having over half of the Democratic caucus in Congress in support of uh, the policy objectives of the Green New Deal and specific Green New Deal policy, um, there's just a a center of gravity for progressive and forward-looking climate policy, climate justice policy that simply never existed before in the Democratic Party. And that's something that um, I'm really proud of. That's an extraordinary result. That must have been a busy time. It was a very busy time. It was a very busy time. And I I personally was doing a lot of traveling to different um, allied organizations around the country, uh, grassroots organizations of uh, every stripe who were interested in the vision and wanted to figure out how they could contribute to the Green New Deal, help fill in the vision of the policy. And then, yeah, uh, growing by thousands of members every week, uh, having hundreds of new chapters, come online in the space of weeks. Um, I mean, I just would be remiss not to just mention and uh, shout out just all of the comrades from that period, all the Sunrisers who were uh, in the trenches, especially in that uh, 2018, 2019 period, because it was an, it was an extraordinary experience. And I think uh, we all, we all learned so much and uh, 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 yeah. Yeah. No. No. Absolutely. And organizationally, that must have been extremely challenging. You you had not, um, uh, you know, a blueprint for huge accelerated growth with all these kind of chapters. Can you talk a little bit about the challenges of uh, you know translating uh, ideas, um, policies into you know uh, organizational structure to get things done? Yeah. Well, we were uh, we were trained in this school called Momentum, which is a, a training institute that still exists uh, and is doing really good work um, thinking about the methods of how to uh, build social movement organizations. Um, but it's been a, a, an evolving and growing body of theory over time. And the theory that we started with was really focused on trying to inspire this decentralized movement activity um, by making it very easy to join the movement and giving people very um, uh, basic instructions and guidelines and parameters of what it meant to be part of Sunrise and organize for the Green New Deal. So what this meant is that uh, you could uh, see the Pelosi action on social media. You could click a link to come to a online orientation training. And then at that training, um, you would hear a message that basically said, um, all right, we're organizing these 
office visits all over the country, you can organize one in the town where you live. Uh, do you want to, uh, will you, you know, uh, recruit 10 of your friends and, and go do this? And then you can become a Sunrise Hub. And so people said yes. And that's, uh, and, and so we grew in the hundreds of hubs um, very quickly in that period. Um, and that was really amazing. And a lot of people who are tremendous leaders to this day got involved in that process. And um, I mean, it was really remarkable for being able to grow the movement and grow the message. Um, that being said, uh, over time, what we found was that we were unable to figure out quite how to take the next step with that model and give the people who had been inspired and had joined as hubs the kind of systematic guidance in how to actually build a deep rooted community organization that could turn out not just a dozen of your friends, but hundreds of your neighbors and coworkers and people you went to school with and just ordinary folks from all over your city. Because that's the kind of power that we ultimately need in every town around the country, right? <laughs> we don't need a dozen activists in every town. We need mass organizations that number in the hundreds of members, thousands of members, and can actually turn out hundreds of people on a consistent basis. And so we, we knew that we were trying to make this leap uh, in our organizing model, but we never, um, I, I don't think that we figured out how to assemble the methods to actually train people how, on how to do that. And meanwhile, we had this like really fast growing, explosive, exciting, uh, a distributed organizing machine that was going, you know, broad but shallow, and uh, that was a bit of a, a of an internal tension built into our model. Yeah, uh, yeah. Well, I mean, you know, you're doing it in real time. It's unfolding. You're responding to uh, situations, and um, you know, the political climate changed pretty dramatically as well over time. But um, I'm wondering. When it comes to, I suppose, the lessons from uh, movements and organizations, you know, uh, what, what you think uh, are some of the insights from Sunrise, some of the things that other organizations, maybe that uh, other movements that uh, might be able to incorporate at the beginning uh, or just lessons that you think would be would be uh, useful. Yeah, well, I think there's a lot of lessons. I would really encourage people to read the two essays in Convergence magazine. The first one is about strategy. The second one, which I uh, co-authored with my friend Diana Jay, is on our organizing model. Um, but I think um, on the organizing model, because that's kind of where we just were, I'll start there. Um, you know, I think people could really uh, learn a lot from the success that we had with um, so-called distributed organizing methods and doing this kind of um, rapid growth, onboarding people using online methods, and then translating that into real-world activism. This is stuff that, I mean, uh, um, my friends and comrades who do the distributed organizing stuff, so brilliant, did so much experimentation, figuring out how to really hone that stuff and make it work for people. And I think there's a lot that, um, that, that you know, people could learn from Sunrise and, and a few other organizations on how to really do that well. Um, and I also think that there's, uh, then, you know, again, certain lessons on the limitations of that, um, that you can also observe. And it's interesting to look back through the history and ask, you know, it's not about throwing out the distributed organizing toolkit for the sake of replacing it with some sort of quote unquote, real structure-based organizing or something like that. But the question is, uh, which methods are suited for, for which moments? And how, as organizations, can we um, even evolve and form with the times? And, uh, you know, I think those are some of the lessons to be able to learn. And that's still underway in Sunrise, and people are, are wrestling with these very lessons right now. So, you know, we do get to learn a lot. Uh, all organizations, to some extent, or large organizations, or growing organizations, seem to uh, face this challenge of, you know, a, a centralized, uh, you know, uh, unified vision versus, you know, some kind of uh, responsive, more localized, you know, how to manage that, how to, to you know, find the sweet spot between having some uh, central vision and uh, even operational structure, but also some flexibility 
in terms of you know what's happening locally. What were some of the challenges that Sunrise saw in terms of responding to local uh, questions? Yeah, well, I mean, what we found was that um, you know people became engaged through the national campaigns and often were very eager and excited to participate in the national campaigns, like, you know, pressuring your congressperson around the Green New Deal or the DNC or whatever it was. Um, they'd be very, very eager to, to be part of that for a period of time. But ultimately, it can't sustain the interest of a, a, a local organization for that long, because for most people, federal politics is just very removed from their lives and their immediate experience. And there's a greater potential of achieving, like, real mass and participation locally, if you're able to uh, dig into a somewhat more localized issue. And um, we knew that we wanted our hubs to be taking on local campaigns, and a lot of them did. Um, and a lot of them are still like doing really excellent local campaigns. But um, as a national body, we just didn't have that much to offer, frankly, <laughs> because I think organizing is hard. And we had really figured out how to do really good federally focused distributed organizing, but we frankly just hadn't figured out how to do really good place-based organizing, campaigning on a local target. Other people uh, are, are, are better practitioners of that than we were. And so frankly, we just weren't that good at it. And so even though we would try, it just like never quite caught on. And we had certain maybe contradictory assumptions about how to go about it, but it was just something that we hadn't um we didn't plan for and we didn't uh, we didn't prioritize. And so then when we needed it, um, we didn't have it. Yeah, I'm interested to to, uh, you know, um, you, you were dealing with a situation with the resources that you had, you know, and I think you did a fantastic job. And I think this analysis is really, really useful and important. Um, one thing which, uh, again, just to <laughs> go back to what Frances uh, Fox Pippen said. One of the things she talked about, uh, being concerned about, um, is about bureaucratization of movements. You know, now that's a, a very big, uh, loose, loose way of describing it. But um, I'm, I'm wondering what, what you think about that because that comes back to this question of you know a central vision. Uh, we're all on the same page versus some kind of interactive, some kind of a collective but varying responses within the uh movement as it were yep i i think the 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 concept of analysis here is governance i think that's the question that kind of encompasses a lot of these different yes. considerations it's uh who decides what and why who leads who follows within an organizational context and then what are the authorities uh, what is the authority of those who are who are the leaders, and how is all of that seen as legitimate uh, throughout the body of the organization? And uh, a lot of times, the local national concerns in organizations are are con questions about legitimacy. Um, what is it that gives these national leaders legitimacy <laughs> to uh, make everybody else follow? Or it's questions of authority. Does the local body have the authority to take on a local campaign, or is that authority also reserved for the national body? And so there's a, a, a veto point there in a sense. And um, I think that the uh, what Piven would call bureaucratization is uh, certainly certainly a danger. Um, but the, the opposite risk of bureaucratization is no coordination whatsoever. And so the question is a question of, of governance. Yeah. And I think we're at a, at a severe deficit on the left as a whole in our practices and theories around organizational governance. Uh, and it, uh, because we used to live in a world where people were habitually and regularly participants in mass organizations. They might have thousands or tens of thousands or even millions of members. They were governed democratically. And that might be a union or it might be a rotary club or it might be somebody's church. And now most of us are not part of those institutions. And so even just the basic business of knowing how to make decisions as a collective um, uh, is something that we've we've really lost. And sometimes it, it then becomes a, a reductive conversation between, you know, total centralization or total horizontalism or something like this. Yeah, yeah. that's very interesting. And uh, uh 
unfolding. Um, yeah, I, I think it's it, it's you know I, I I wrote about business for some time, and this is always a question as well: centralization, decentralization, globalization, localization. You know, and it is uh, these kind of questions are are really only answered in 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 the I guess idiosyncratic conditions in which these things unfold. But yes, I I think that's right. Uh, the question of governance is is really an important one. Um, I, I'd like to touch on something that you mentioned at the beginning um, and, and something that I'm very interested in is uh, very often I, I, I talk to uh, uh, people when I'm interviewing them and I ask them, well, what, you know, what inspires them or what makes them, you know, uh, feel positive? And, and they say the young people and what the young people are doing. But um, is, you know, the emotional uh, weight of being an activist, um, being a young person, that's also a tremendous burden. Yeah, it's a good question. You know, I think that to put the sort of um, moral burden on young people or the burden of having to inspire change, um, honestly, it's a symptom that we continue to misunderstand the problem. Because if we are to make the change, it involves everybody <laughs> changing, whether that's at their work or, you know, in their, not in their consumption habits, <laughs> but, but policy, through guided by policy, we are going to have to remake every bit of the agricultural system, of the energy system, of the transit system and frankly, of the political system of this country. If we are to uh, survive and retain the sort of democratic rights, even that we have now in the midst of a climate catastrophe. So um, people continue to, and so the voice of youth, if it could do anything, is simply to say, this must be done, to remind people of the scope of what, what must be done, the true nature of the program, the, of the problem, and Greta has done this better than anybody. And this is why she is so good. Is She is so relentless about playing that role of youth, which is to insist that reality is reality <laughs> and that things uh, that science dictates have to happen in order to achieve certain outcomes are real. <laughs> and so I don't know if I have much to say about it besides that, but um, uh Truthfully, you know, I think we need this all of society mobilization and it's not limited to young people. And um, when I hear people say that uh, young people, whoever are giving them hope, you know, the next question needs to be, OK, so what are you doing? If you're inspired, what, what, what have you been inspired to do? Because at the end of the day, that's the only question that really matters. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, I, 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 that's that's really interesting. I, I did a, a, an episode where I spoke to some youth activists, you know, around COP26 uh, from Bangladesh, from India, from England. Um, and it just really struck me the psychological uh, weight of it all, you know, the cost, the impact it had on their own well-being and um yeah, dealing with that. I mean, do you do you see that uh, amongst young people and the people who are activists? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's tremendously difficult, and we all struggle with it. I've struggled a lot with it. If I had been, you know, better at, um, I guess, taking care of myself and remaining resilient in my energy reserves, um, I might still be at sunrise, as it were. I I I was tired. <laughs> I was a youth climate activist for, you know. 10 years, 12 years, pretty much uninterrupted. And, you know, I, I got to be 30 and um, I, I felt less young than I used to be, but I was also just, I was also just exhausted, you know, uh, emotionally from going through all of it. So uh, we all, we all struggle with it. I don't know anybody who doesn't struggle with it. Um, but I, I also think that, you know, um, I find a lot of relief in, um, commiserating with other young people about the anger that we feel towards, uh, <laughs> towards, towards boomers. <laughs> and, uh, that's not very, 
this, but this is a thing. This is a real. This is a real thing, isn't it? There is. It's not very diplomatic, but that is actually the grounds of solidarity that a lot of young people feel is anger at older generations, and I don't discount that as an organizer. So I don't say that in any circle. But when I'm with other young people, one of the pleasures of being with other millennials and with Gen Zers is the permission to speak freely about how we feel about the older generations, which is not kindly. Yeah, I understand that. So I, I, I've interviewed various people, but what, what, one of one of the people I interviewed was a Jungian analyst, very lovely man, who's also a climate scientist. Actually, he said that uh, he thought that climate change was our generation's shadow, something that we hadn't integrated, something we hadn't dealt with, that was you know uh, put upon the younger generation. So I do think there, you know, there, this intergenerational thing is really important, and uh, I, I'm really interested in ways to actually heal that and to bring people together because i think um you know i think that's really important and i think as i as i said you know i, I get a bit tired of people saying oh that's brilliant the young people because the young people i've spoken to are you know they're carrying the cost it's it, it is a tremendous thing to be doing and i don't want to be kind of clapping and say oh that's brilliant i want to be saying well actually you know we're in this together and actually you know we're responsible you know so yeah thank you so much for being so frank and uh what's next for you william well i despite what uh you know uh, how i may have have come off here i i remain um very uh engaged in an applied way to the to the task of um revolution i suppose because it seems like that's what it's going to take of one form or another and um, so I'm, I'm, I'm working on this organization, 517 Can't Wait, which is just getting established here in uh, Ingham County and Lansing area, Michigan. And um, we're going to be fighting for, uh, our mission is for this to be a great place to live for everybody in the 21st century, no exceptions, and to stake our, stake our claim to live a good lives in, in the 21st century and face the systemic crises of climate change, racism, capitalism, figure out what we need to do to actually live good lives. Because I'm not giving up on having a great life, <laughs> even if the climate is changing. And, uh, and so uh, that's what I'm kind of turning my attention to, uh, remain fully in support and solidarity with Sunrise and with uh, all other movements around the country and the world that are fighting for liberation and especially trying to get their, wrap their heads around this climate problem, which really is the problem uh, of, of the century. And so uh, anybody who's really, you know, trying to tackle that, um, I'm with them. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, I mean, not only is it, a, you know, a nitwicked and global problem, but when you take it to a local level, uh, is, is that a bit more manageable in some sense? Well, I find that it's, um, very satisfying to be thinking about the matters of um, uh, of sort of industrial policy and economic transition from a, a, a more localized level, because rather than asking, you know, how yeah. do we decarbonize the entire economy? It's quite abstract. You're asking, yes. how do we make 100 uh, percent of our the housing stock in this city uh, sustainable housing? How do we provide green public transit to service those properties? How do we make sure that um, poor people can afford to live in these properties? Uh, how is it that we're going to be, you know, uh, building parks so that people can have a good time in the midst of all their sustainable housing? So, and, and you can actually bring it down to the matter of an intersection or an address. And uh, that part I find exceedingly satisfying and, and very tangible when you consider that ultimately the project is to do that, but everywhere. Yeah, no, that's very interesting because, you know, you went into the, the belly of the beast, as it were, you know, you're pish, pitting yourselves against some of the most powerful interests, economic and in American politics, world politics, um, 
It's not that there the, the, there isn't a, a a battle and a, a fight ongoing when you're w- working in your own community, but I suppose this also uh, reflects a little bit on this this kind of uh, top down instrumental, you know, uh, not as much you know political uh, way of dealing with 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 these problems, you know, which which works through established you know interests and political structures. But when you're working from a more bottom-up approach it may be uh it's not so scalable but um is very powerful yeah perhaps i i would be cautious uh to to draw too many too many broader claims about strategy from what i'm personally doing here i think it's like i'll say this this is where i'm finding that i can place my hope right now is in doing this work in the place where I live. It feels very vital. It feels very energizing to me. It feels very exciting to me. And that's why I'm doing it. Because I reached a point where I felt that I had given a lot, but didn't have anything more to give to the you know federal scene. But I would be the first to say that I think we need <laughs> we need a lot more good ideas and good organizational formations that are figuring out how to uh, uh, you know, continue to 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 work on the national stage and try to build federal power because I mean, yes, a very good point because we we uh, the so much of the way we think about uh, solutions are proposed to deal with the climate is a very polarized binary. It's either this or this, but actually both of them. But I wish you the very best with all your ongoing work, William, and thank you so much for your time today. And indeed, all of the great work that you did done over time with Sunrise. And I wish you the best. Thank you for your time today. Thank you, Fergal. I appreciate it. Just as 50 years ago, when the world used international treaties to defuse the threats posed by nuclear weapons, today, the world needs a fossil fuel non-proliferation treaty, a global initiative to phase out fossil fuels, support dependent economies, workers and communities to diversify away from fossil fuels, ensure 100% access to renewable energy globally and, importantly, ensure a just transition that leaves no one behind. You can show your support for this vital initiative at fossilfueltreaty.org. Thank you for listening to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. I hope you found it interesting. It would be great if you could leave a review and share the podcast on social media. You can sign up at iTunes to make sure you don't miss any future episodes.